It's great to be together in the house of God, isn't it? For all of you who are joining us online, we are thrilled that you're with us today. And can we give a shout out to everyone in Alma? We love you, Alma. Praise God. They're shouting out, I promise. Uh, it's great to be together. Okay, I, I wanna, we're talking about the gospel right now. We're in the second week of this series called Undiluted, and I'm so excited to share what is just simply good, good news. But let me start off with a challenge, and I want to see if I can grab kind of everybody with this. It is my belief that every person here, myself included, have fallen into a trap. And if, if I could describe that trap, I would call it the trap of personal performance. And maybe by way of illustration, um, I, I remember vividly, it's amazing when you go back all those years, there are certain things that just stick out in your memory. As a very young little boy, maybe five or six years of age, being at my grandmother's house. This is a perfect picture for me of the trap of personal performance. And I was sitting in my grandmother's living room, and uh, my mom came in and gave me a bowl of stew and put it on my lap, and I was watching the cartoons. And I can remember the room, the TV's over here, and there was a wall over here, and it was one of those walls that had like a little cutout, like a cubby hole, and it had glass panes that you could slide back and forth. So you could see into the kitchen, or you could close it off if you wanted to. And as I was sitting there, the glass was wide open, and so I could see in there was my mom and my grandmother, and they were just chatting away, and they were make, making the food and getting things ready. And there I was with my bowl of stew. And uh, now I grew up going to Mass, and I, I'm sure almost every single one of you have, uh, are familiar with this, where you grew up in a way where before you ate, you would say a prayer, and we had a kind of a learned prayer that we had. And then at the very end of it, so thank you, Lord, for these thy gifts that you've graciously given to us, bless this food to our bodies in Jesus' name, and then you would do this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I'm sure most of us have seen that or maybe even done that yourselves over the years. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I'm sitting there, how messed up is this? The trap of personal performance. There's the cubby, there's my grandmother and my mother, they're in there, and I'm watching the cartoons, my bowl of shoe. I didn't eat it. And I'm looking in the corner of my eye to see when they pass by that little cubby, that little opening. And as soon as I saw them, this is what I did. I wouldn't let them see that I saw them. I go like this. They didn't see me. Okay. I'll wait. Corner of my eye. As soon as I saw them, maybe pass by. And I did it again. And again. This is messed up. This is really messed up. A little kid. It's a trap of personal performance until I heard it. <gasps> Look at that. That's my grandmother. Look at that. He's saying his prayers. Let's go, Scooby-Doo. Let's get into the stew. That's messed up. What is that in, in a kid that young? Hey, are you impressed over there in the kitchen? And I'm telling you, you've done it. Hey, God, check it out. Are you impressed with the stuff that I do for you. Are you impressed? I got all kinds of tricks up my sleeves, and you're gonna be so happy with me. I'm gonna be a good little boy, we're gonna be good little girls. It's a trap of personal performance. If you went out on campus right now, in Alma, in Mount Pleasant, if you go down Mission Street, Broadway, pop into Meyer, and if you were to ask almost anybody this pretty basic question, but a pretty big question. What do you have to do to get to go to heaven? 
It's a good question, right? That's a, we should all probably wrestle with that at some stage in our life. What do I have to do to get to go to heaven? I'm going to tell you right now, 95% of the time, you're going to get some version of this personal trap. You're going to get some version of, and here's what it probably sounds like. Well, you know, I try to be a good... Ever heard it before? Ever thought it before? Ever said it before? And so we roll up our sleeves and we try our very best to impress everybody. And then you get this version of, uh, you know, if they go into it a little further, I'll give you a little bit of my spiritual resume, but I'll be cautious because I, I don't want to come across as, you know, but, you know, I do go to church and I do say my prayers and I do read my Bible and I do help you and I give money to this and that. And I, this is what comes out of us. This is what comes, it just pours out of us. And then actually it gets even worse. Because then you get to a point where you look around you and you say, well, you know, at least I don't do. And then we begin to list off and we get this little grade in our mind of, you know, my stuff, it doesn't stink as bad as your stuff. I mean, my sins are the nicer sins. They're not as bad as your bad sins. And then taken to its most toxic place. I'm not as bad as that person. I do my stuff. I'm not as bad as they are. Luke 18, Jesus told a story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and they scorned everybody else. Please pay attention of who he is speaking to in this story. People who are self-assured that they've got their act together. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing apparently and they're looking down their noses scorning everybody else. Here's the story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Oh, he's got his act together, right? He's a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. Jesus is picking two polar opposites. Everyone would look at a tax collector as being the worst of the worst sinners. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income, his tithes and his offerings. Tax collector stood at the distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. And this is a sign of grief. He's beating his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus tells us what this means. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be lifted up and exalted. I mean, if we're going to take a real look at the gospel, the undiluted gospel, if we're going to take a sincere attempt to look at the claims of Jesus Christ, then I think every one of us have got to admit that at some point in our lives, maybe even up until this day, we are diluting the gospel with what we think we need to add to it. Personal performance. We have taken this essential, beautiful, powerful gift called grace... God's gift for you, and we've said, I think I can make it better. I'm going to change it. I'm going to water it down. God, your grace for me by itself 
it's not quite enough. I'll tweak it. I'll add to it. Here's how you know if you've ever struggled to understand and experience grace. Notice I said to understand and then to experience grace. Have you ever listened to a message? You ever read a Christian book? You ever listened to a YouTube clip from a, a Christian speaker or a podcast or a Sunday morning sermon or something like that? And as you're listening to it, you're thinking to yourself, you know, that's great, but that's not for me. That's when you know you struggle to understand and experience grace. I, it's almost like you're listening to something, and you're like, I know it's good. I know it's actually right. I know it's true, but it's not for me. Because that's not attainable for me right now the way I am. I can't reach that in my current condition. That doesn't apply. It could apply to other people, but it doesn't apply to me. And if that's you, you've only heard half the message. You've given intellectual agreement to something, but you have not given personal permission for that truth to actually change you and impact you and for you to experience it. It hasn't reached you. The main scripture I want to look at is one verse in John chapter 1. For the law was given through Moses. This is the Ten Commandments, the Torah. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, please notice there are two things. So Moses gave us the law, but Jesus gives us grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And yet so many of us will nod our heads in agreement at truth. It sounds right. I think I believe that it's right. Uh, it all makes sense but it's just not for me. And when we say it's not for me, we are refusing an impartation of grace because we have become convinced that in order for truth to be applied, we must first clean up our act. Fran Japan puts it like this, beautiful statement. And I want you to listen to these words. In fact, I want your, your spirit to just be filled with faith right now, like your mind. God, give me faith today. Give me faith to trust you not just to intellectually nod at you, that your ears and your heart and your mind would be flooded with faith. God, give me the gift of faith. And here's what he says. What God's truth demands, his grace will provide. So if God's going to bring something to bear in your life, he says, look, this is what is real and honest and truth, and, and it's me, I am the truth, yet we're willing to reject that. And God says, no, I will give you to the grace so that that truth can actually be brought to bear in you. We hear truth, we're unable to recognize it as truth. We refuse it outright. And that's actually why you need His grace. Simon Peter, <clears throat> he falls. He, he encounters truth. He encounters Jesus Christ. And his reaction is that he actually falls down on his knees and he says, Jesus, I need you to get away from me because I, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked person. I need you to depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And I think sometimes we're even guilty of saying to other people, you know, you need to come close to Jesus. You need to, be, you need to live your life like Jesus like this. But the truth is, in our own minds, we're like, yeah, close, but not too close. We encounter truth, and we're overwhelmed at our own messed up flaws and shame and regret. We encounter truth and we say, no, I'm overwhelmed by my sin. Get away from me, God. I know I can tell other people to come close, but I can't get too close. I'm overwhelmed by my sin. Or we have another reaction. We encounter truth and it goes to our heads. So you, 
in, in the course of your attempts to follow God, you experience God's voice, which is a normal and regular part of our lives. You open up his word, you ever read something in the Bible and it just hits you between the eyes. I mean, it just sinks right into your heart and you know, man, this is so applicable to where I am right now with what I'm thinking through, what I'm struggling with. This is God speaking to me. You come here on a Sunday and you feel like, I think if there was no one else in the room, that was for me. God singled me out and he spoke to me. And then what we do is we hear something and then our heads get filled and we think, well, you know, I'm on the receiving end of revelation from God. I, I ca I've caught a glimpse of his truth and I'm all that. And can I just say to you, neither of those scenarios is what God is trying to accomplish. He is neither trying to overwhelm you nor is he trying to inflate your ego. But both reactions are very common. The ultimate purpose behind truth the ultimate purpose behind a revelation from God is that you would then receive the grace to experience that truth and apply it into your own life. And you'd actually be changed. Author Manning, he says this, one day you will stand before God. He says, I think there's a real possibility they may just have one question for you. Did you believe that I loved you? Did you believe that I desired you? That I waited for you? I waited to hear from you day after day that I longed to hear the sound of your voice. And the real believer will say, yes, God, yes, Jesus, I actually believed in your love, and then I tried to shape my life around a response to your love for me. But many of us who are so faithful in serving God, many of us who are embedded in the local church and serving and doing all kinds of wonderful things in our practice and in our discipline and in our church going, are going to have to reply, well, frankly, no, sir. I never really believed it. I heard a lot of wonderful sermons about it. I read a book about it once. I even gave a talk or two about it myself. But actually, in quite, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, I just never believed it for myself. I always knew that it was just a way of speaking. It's like a kind lie. It was a Christian pious pat on the back to cheer each other on. And that is the difference between a real believer and nominal believers that I think are bound in churches all over this country. You see, nobody can measure like a believer the depth and the breadth and the magnitude of the love of God. That's wonderful. But nobody can measure like a believer our own personal gloom and despair and negativity and self-hatred and denial and low self-esteem and personal performance games that actually end up as obstacles between us and God. And today, I want you to lay a hold of this basic truth of the faith, grace alone. Last week, we talked about Jesus alone. Today, I want you to encounter just His grace. You don't have to water it down. And you don't have to change it. You don't have to improve it. And you certainly don't have to add to it. You see, if you strip God of grace, if you usurp the Word of God and demand that you are the one who must continue to outperform your own inadequacies and mistakes and regrets, then you will remain very small throughout the remainder of your life. God made man in his own image. We talked about this just a few weeks ago. God made man in his own image. Philosopher Blaise Pascal said, and we returned the compliment. So we made God in our own image. And when we do that, 
He winds up being very fussy and rude and narrow-minded and legalistic and judgmental. He winds up being as unforgiving and unloving and as judgmental as we are. I've had the privilege of traveling to many countries around the world, and I've just bumped into too many Christians, and I'm sorry, but their God is just too small for me because it's not the God of the Word, and it's not the God that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This moment, he comes to your seat, and he says to you, I have a word for you today. I know everything about you. I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, degraded love that has ever darkened your past. And right now, I see your shallow faith. I see your feeble prayer life. I see your inconsistent discipleship. And this is my word for you. I dare you to believe that I love you just as you are. <laughs> and when you take on the role of, you know, thanks for what you did, God, but I'll help you out. When you assume the role of, I've got this. I can be my own personal savior here. God, I appreciate the work, but let me help you out here. Let me, because this is heavy lifting. When you assume the work of repairing your own broken person, you're presuming the position of personal savior for your personal problems, and you're kicking Christ to the curb. You are usurping God. And actually, I think we do it more than we'd like to admit. And the reason why is because in every single other arena of your life, you're supposed to sit up straight, roll up your sleeves, and give a bit of a dig out. You're supposed to sweat a little. Think of any other arena of your life. Relationships, friendship, marriage, parenting, work, making money, having a career, studying, scholarship, passing tests, writing papers. You're supposed to roll up your sleeves and do a bit of work. And it's ingrained in us. And I think sometimes we're looking at God and we're like, well, you don't have to dig all the trenches. I mean, after all, I'm kind of the one that made the mess. So at least, the, you know, the least I could do is kind of, kind of clean up after myself and kind of mop the floor a little bit. So why don't you take a break and I'll take over from here, God. You're assuming the role of God. It's a Messiah complex. Do you know what the Bible calls it when we assume the role of God? That's called idolatry. And the Bible says you're actually supposed to repent of that. Because newsflash, you ain't God. It's a messed up Messiah complex that will actually do you a disservice and it'll give you a false grasp of God's identity and God's power and God's role of love for you in your life. Ephesians 1. In Him, we have redemption. Well, how do we have redemption? Is it the stuff that I do, God? Let's have a look. In Him, we have redemption through His, everybody, through His, His blood. Like, slightly serious thing here. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't know if that's enough, God. How about, I'm grateful for that. I'm going to do some extra stuff as well. But this scripture would seem to say that it's singularly because of his shed blood. Uh, we have also forgiveness of sins. How do we have forgiveness of sins? Well, that would be in accordance with the riches of God's. Everybody, God's what? His grace. And he lavishes it on us. The scripture says, I'm giving you redemption. What, what is that, God? 
Well, it basically means that there's a debt that needs to be paid. There's an obligation that's due. There's a note out against you. There's a warrant, and they've got your picture, and they're coming to get you. And if I can just be really rude, and everyone watching online, and everybody in Alma, and everybody right here in this room, can I just include myself in this as well, that to simply say, we are all debtors to God, every one of us. But because of his death on the cross, there's no more warrant for me. I don't know about you. Because of his shed blood. This is what scripture says. Because he did something as serious as shedding his blood on my behalf, like the obligation that I should be carrying all my life, that I just, I just could never, ever pay this thing off. The warrant for my arrest, this debt that I just was beyond my capacity and my resources to ever pay off. This obligation, this debt that was leaning heavily on me because of his shed blood. He's just been, I've just been redeemed. Jesus comes and now there's no longer a warrant held against me. Colossians chapter 2. And feel free to get a little amen in your spirit because this is all good news. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, and he nailed it to the cross. Yeah, baby. This is good news. This is really good news. And if you'd honestly come to God which is kind of a humble heart and say, Lord, this is the truth about me and I'm coming in need of a forgiver. Here's my repentance. I'm going to trust you. It's just every time, like every sin, every evil thing, every evil thought, every act of depravity, every evil deed, each of which deserved its own punishment. And it's like, you know, those paperwork when they get that rubber stamp and it's just from that scripture that we read. It's just like, yeah, redeemed, yeah, redeemed, no obligation, yeah, no warrant, yeah, it's paid in full, there's no debt, this is your life. And he just stamps it over you every single time. It's taken care of, the debt's gone, the obligation's gone, the warrant is gone, the obligation, all of these things, they're gone. I want you today to grasp the complete work of Christ. I want you to grasp the fact that when he came to forgive sins, it was your past, your present, and your future. He's got this. He's strong enough. He's certainly stronger than you and I. Trust me. He didn't like come to earth and then ascend to heaven and be like, oh, man, I'm sure I forgot. There's something I must have... Was there anything I needed to do that I didn't do? It just didn't go like that for the Messiah. He left nothing undone. There's nothing neglected in his work. There's no important detail that now requires you to kind of make up the shortfall for Jesus Christ. It's simply not necessary, and it's not in the gospel message whatsoever. And when he whispered, it is finished on the cross, there is now for you no need and no room for you to add anything whatsoever. You simply end up looking at the finished work of Christ. Today, what I want for you is to actually encounter grace, not just agree with it mentally and say, I like that, or that could be for some other people, but I want this to be your experience. The undeserved riches that you cannot earn, and you never will earn it. You will never deserve it. No matter how many 
little things you do, no matter how many times you're a good little boy and a good little girl, it's just not about that. His love for you is actually removed from you. It's apart from you. It's apart from what you do. It's apart from what you don't do. It's apart from your thoughts and your actions. I want you to realize the truth of his love for you, instead of building up these brick walls because you come face to face with your own sin and you're like, thanks for the truth, but no thanks. I think that can't really come near me. I want you to uncover the reality of his love for you. And then you think about your grace and just, excuse me, your, um, your shame and your regrets and you're like, no, I'm going to build a brick wall. How about we just close our mouth and we just receive his grace? For me, for you. certain man was gifted by the Holy Spirit with a tremendous gift. He had the ability to come up to people and just have these words of knowledge, prophetic. He was a guest at a church one evening, in a church that was not familiar with that kind of thing. And uh, he approached the pastor and the pastor's wife. And he said, in front of the whole church, I, I have a word for you. And he began to speak things. There's just no way that that man could have humanly known. Just no way that naturally speaking, he could have had that understanding. And he began to lay out for this couple their past and their present and their future. And the whole church heard this. And they were like, we've never heard anything like that before. And it gave such glory to God. It, it made Jesus the hero. And it is such a blessing and encouragement to this couple in ministry that the whole church just celebrated the work of God even though it was very unusual for them and they said they were astonished this must be the Lord a month later they asked the same gentleman if he would return and he gladly did and during an evening's meeting together in church they were worshiping and there were two couples there that were in ministry um, a husband and wife and a husband and wife that were pastoring churches and he came up to them, and it was very, very similar, Some, something of the personality of the gift that God had given to him. And he came up to this first couple, and he did the same thing. He talked about their past, and their present, and their future, and the whole church was like, wow, like, there's no way that he could know that. that ha that's the Lord blessing them, and helping them, and, and directing them. And then there was this last couple, and for whatever reason, he spoke to the husband separately. And the same thing his past, his present, and his future. And then came this final person, this lady, the wife. And he walked up to her and he began to just pray and, and then he began to speak. And, and he said, in front of everybody, as he's talking about her past, he said, there is a very serious sin in your past. And it was like the whole church was like, what is he going to say? just kind of hushed, and everyone kind of leaned forward. And this woman, I mean, she just doubled over. She just turned pale, and she was shaking, and she was sweating. This is like all her worst nightmares for something horrendous that had happened in her past that she had been a part of. And she's just cringing like, oh, no, God. Are you going to expose me like this? And everyone just hushed, and they leaned in, and they listened. And the man said, and I have asked the Lord... What is this grave, grave sin? And the Lord has said, I don't remember. 
I just don't remember. Isaiah 43. I, yes, I alone, will blot out your sins for my sake, and I will never think of them again. Like, I just love this gospel message. Don't you just love it? This is an hour, I met, sometimes I preach messages and I'm like, that's hard to preach. This is not hard to preach. This is such a loving thing to preach. I will remember them no more. I want you to hear this for you today. I'm done with your sins. I'm going to wipe out your transgressions. I'm going to blot them out. I'm not going to remember them anymore. And he is faithful to his promises. Please do not miss the work that needs to take place in your heart right now. For years, this pastor's wife had mentally agreed and asked, Lord, could you forgive me? Could you please clean me up? I've done this terrible thing. But she could never, ever receive the depths of God's grace and forgiveness over her life. Her sin had been paid for. Her sin had been dealt with everywhere else except for the prison of her own mind. For her, she was still bound up and caught up in shame and regret. And in that moment, for the first time in her life, her heart melted. Since the first time she had committed whatever that awful, treacherous, horrendous disobedience was, and the truth of his shed blood that gives us redemption actually came to bear and actually was accomplished in the form of grace, and she experienced it there and then. It invaded her soul, and that burden that she'd carried all her life was gone. It was gone. Church, I have a word for you. I know your whole story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every moment of sin, shame, dishonesty, degraded love that has darkened your past. And right now, I see your shallow faith and your feeble prayer life and your inconsistent discipleship. And my word is this. I dare you to trust that I love you just as you are. I dare you to trust my grace.